Peace, peace, and welcome. This is Cook on Quarantine. I am Stevon Cook, back with another very important, bright, and lovely change agent in our great country. She hails from the city of Houston, which I have a great affinity for. And so um, I'm looking forward to hearing more about her story. She serves on the board of trustees uh, the, for the Board of Independent School District in Houston. Uh, so we are going to talk a bit about why she decided to do a crazy thing like run for office, the issues that Houston is facing around COVID, and we'll get to know her, obviously, a lot better over the course of our conversation. This is Trustee Judith Cruz. Thank you for coming on Cooking Quarantine. I appreciate you. Thank you, Stevon. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So let me tell you a little bit about why I love Houston. All right. Okay, I want to hear it. <laughs> I love Houston too. <laughs> It all started with the rapper Mike Jones. <laughs> <laughs> I wish tell it was me more. Tell me more. <laughs> I wish it was something <laughs> more cool, like rap a lot records and Scarface. That'd be a little more like you know, I get more street cred for that. But but it started with Mike Jones, so that was my only impression of it before I actually went a year ago, and I love the vibe there. Um, did you grow up in Houston? I grew up in Texas, um, mostly College Station, which is really close to Houston. That's about an hour and a half from here. Um, I've been in Houston longer than I've lived in any city, so almost 20 years. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely home, for sure. So 20 years in Houston, okay. What, what industry brought you to Houston? So my family moved here while I was in college. And um, you know, when I was done with school, I was trying to decide what to do. And I ended up doing Teach for America and going to D.C., Washington, D.C. And I actually lived there for three years. Thought I was going to stay longer, loved my experience, but missed my Texas winters and missed my family. And so ended up coming back home to Texas and ended up settling in Houston. Um, you know, I was looking at living in Austin as well, where, where I had gone to college. But, um, you know, like you said, the vibe in Houston and the diversity here is unlike, you know, anywhere else. And, um, you know, I had taught immigrants and I was continuing to teach and that was the population that I wanted to work with. And so that's why I ended up in Houston. Yeah, we should get into Teach for America. I, I beef with Teach for America in San Francisco. We got a lot of issues. So we won't spend too much Uh-oh. time. But uh <laughs> but uh nah no beef, no beef, no beef. You were in DC, which I also love. Um I love paying a little picture of your home life growing up in College Station. Like how many siblings, what was the family, what was the home like? I actually, there's six of us, six kids. I'm the second oldest, three boys and three girls, um, kind of coincidentally. And uh, my mom is from Guatemala. And so we grew up visiting um, probably like every two or three years. um, And we'd always drive. So, um, you know, we didn't have a lot of money having six kids. You don't have a lot of extra (laughs) cash on hand. Um, So we would always drive down to Guatemala, um, which uh, are some of my best memories growing up. Um, definitely adventurous. Um, so I grew up in a bilingual home. Um, and, you know, my dad was in school for much of, of my home life, you know, growing up years. He graduated um, with his PhD when I graduated high school. So we graduated at the same time. So, um, you know, I grew up on free and reduced lunch, um, you know, not a lot of um, extra things. You know, I, I got a job at 15 so that I could afford to have. Um, you know, just clothes, you know, that, that was in style or anything else that I wanted to do that was extra beyond what my parents could afford. And so, um, but, you know, I have wonderful, wonderful memories of growing up. Um, you know, my family's very close, 
can't complain. Um, you know, I have really, really great memories. And I think it's given me a lens into, um, you know, the, the families that are in our school district now, um, and especially now during the pandemic, um, you know, what it's like to grow up with not having, um, you know, everything that you want or desire, but um, having to make the most of, of the opportunities that you're given. Uh, what did your dad get his PhD in? Um, soil science. So he's like a wetland specialist. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cool. yeah. Cool. So there was <laughs> and he a... actually just retired. And so they, they moved back to Guatemala. That's where they are now. Oh, wow. My parents. Wow. And you have kids mm-hmm. also, right? Yes. I have three sons, three children, ages. Three boys. 15. Three boys. <laughs> 15, 12, and 10. Okay. Yeah. So it's been, it's been an adventure during the pandemic, having them home, um, you know, watching them do their schooling online and the different experiences that they've had. Um, and definitely just having the lens of being a parent in the district, you know, not just during the pandemic, but all the time. Yeah. I want to get into that. I just want, I just wanted to see if you had followed in your parents' footsteps of hella children. It sounds like you, you, you're about, you're about close. <laughs> not six. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> three was good three was good <laughs> uh, with your siblings uh are so like what what are they up to these days i see you're on the on the board of trustees like what's some of the stuff that they're into yeah so interestingly um you know my two sisters have you know followed the path of education and social services so my oldest sister um she was a teacher for many many years um, and my young, my youngest sister, who is the youngest sibling of the six of us, she's a social worker and she's, um, worked in public schools as a social worker as well. And is actually about to start, um, in a public school setting again as a social worker. So, yeah, so it seems like all of us are either, you know, if we're not in education, we're in some sort of social service. And, you know, my parents raised us, um, very mindful of, you know, being aware of the needs of others and not thinking of ourselves. Um, you know, having the lens growing up here, but also going to Guatemala, third world country, um, seeing poverty in a very different environment. And so always just made us very self-aware and, and motivated us to work in helping professions. I want to get into uh, the crazy decision to run for Board of Education. Um, <laughs> and I want to talk a little bit about like the how-to. I've, I've spoken to a number of the folks that we got connected through. We got connected through school board partners. And uh, a number of the school board members around the country I've had on the podcast, people sort of come into their positions in different ways. Some of us are appointed. Some of us had to run for office. You were you you ran, correct? I ran, and I didn't run just once. This was actually the second time I ran. Oh, okay, um, yeah. I lost the I lost, first time. I lost my first time too. Oh, okay, yeah. you have to share that story with me. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, after the first time, I was like, no, never. Like, <laughs> Ever. No, like, please, no, never again. And and somehow, and it was actually um, nine years, you know, later that I, that I ran again. Um, oh, so, you know, there, there were two elections in between and, you know, I just was like, no, mm-hmm. it's, you know, I, I, you know how it is, you know, what, what a campaign takes, let alone, you know, once you're on the board, but just the campaign alone. Yeah. You have to really think about it. So I ran and lost in 2014. They ran and won in 2016. Mm. Now I had the good sister, awesome. Dorian Murray Thomas on the podcast and she's so lovely and dynamic. Um, she is. She ran at 23 and won. She's so spoiled. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're like, you had it so easy. <laughs> I just got a lovely dynamic. That's called a spoil. But like, 
thing that I love about her, because uh, I want to get into your story about, you know, that process for you. The thing I love about her was that, um, that I love about her is that even though she's so impressive, she just doesn't come off like that at all. She's just like always appreciative, you know? And I yeah. would have been super cocky <laughs> if I were my first train <laughs> 23. <laughs> I needed and that to young, lose. right? <laughs> I needed to lose. I needed to get humble, you know, for real. <laughs> so, so you had a nine-year gap. When were you recently elected? What what year was it? So, just last year in 2019, November of 2019, I was elected, and then I was sworn in in January. Okay. Um, so, you know, I've just been on the board a few months. Mm-hmm. Very new. It's a, it's a good time to start. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I had no, I mean, it's like, you knew, I knew it was going to be a challenging task no matter what. But, you know, even when I got sworn in, I mean, I, I don't think we even, even heard of COVID. You know, maybe we had started to hear about it, but it was just, you know, something in China, something so far away, it didn't even seem something that we would ever experience firsthand, you know, and then two months later, our our whole world changed and our schools changed. And, you know, as trustees, we were. Um, thinking about things that we never would have imagined. So it's been interesting. So so the, the initial run, that, was that in 2011 or 2010? 2010, 2010. And it was interesting because um, it was actually a special election. So the trustee that was in that position um, resigned abruptly. There was a, an, a year left of that seat. And the board could have either voted to appoint somebody or vote to call a special election. And they ended up calling a special election. And at that time, I couldn't have even told you who my trustee was. You know, we, we have single member districts. I mean, I couldn't even told you who was who anyone on the board was. And I had been a former teacher. I'd taught for 10 years. I had taught in Houston Independent School District. But, um, you know, I was just in my bubble of, of my classroom and, you know, just shut my door and taught my kids and didn't think much more about it. And, um, you know, I had taken a hiatus from teaching. I was staying home with my kids and my oldest um, had just started preschool, pre-K in, in Houston ISD. And so I started to pay a little more attention and realized that this was happening, um, was contacted by someone that was looking, you know, to get folks to run that would never have considered it otherwise. And, um, you know, started talking to other folks and I thought, yeah, like this sounds great. I really, you know, I want to help kids. I've been a teacher. Like I understand there's a lot of inequities. I see it firsthand. Um, you know, my, my oldest kid, we were, we live in the middle of Houston. We were attending our title one neighborhood school. I could see the disparities that existed. And I thought, yeah, if I can influence change, why not? Had no idea, no idea what a campaign was, what, um, you know, actually being a a trustee entailed. And so just kind of dove head first and blind, <laughs> it's probably, you know, I, I probably wouldn't have said yes had I understood um, all of the complexities, but uh, it was a huge learning experience. I don't regret it um, by any means. Um, met a, and a lot of amazing people with, you know, able to talk to so many voters and, and parents across the district and hear, um, you know, their concerns and understand um, much better, um, you know, the picture of what HISD is. Mm-hmm. So um, there were six of us on the ballot because there was no incumbent, right? Um, so the two top um, candidates, we went into a runoff. So I had 34% of the vote 
the next candidate had 24, 20%, so I had a huge lead. And then it was the Tuesday after Thanksgiving, we were the only thing on the ballot. There was no, nothing else in Harris County. I, was, I remember it was like 6 p.m. The, the polls were going to close at 7 and I was knocking on doors and please go to the polls. And it was cold. You know, people weren't thinking about voting. You know, it already passed. It was almost Christmas time. And um, I ended up losing by 44 votes. 44 votes. That's it. Oh, wait. It was such a close election, you know? And so I thought, and I remember just coming out of it, um, you know, and reflecting and just thinking, wow, you know, that was, that was rough. It wasn't just rough on me. It was rough on my family. My kids were five, three, and my youngest turned one during the election, mm. during the campaign. Mm. Um, so, you know, it was, it was a sacrifice for all of us, um, but it was a huge, you know, learning experience. And so a year later was the regular election, the four-year election for that seat. And so folks were like, you're going to run again, right? I'm still getting over that campaign. You know? mm-hmm. I can't even think about running again. And, and, you know, just having had that sacrifice for my family, I thought I can't put them through that again. So then four years later, the next cycle comes up again. And I'm like, no, my kids are too young. It's just, I, mm-hmm. I just can't, it's not, it's not right. And so I started to try to find people to run, you know, it's like, we need to get, you know, high quality candidates. I talked to so many community leaders, parents, and people would see, you know, how much time it was taking, it's unpaid, and thinking, I can't do this. There's just no way. Then I saw that no one wanted to run. The incumbent hadn't made clear if she was going to run again or not. And um, the Houston ISD board was, or still is, um, in the middle of a lawsuit with the Texas Education Agency. They were being investigated during my campaign time. Um, and so I realized like we need new leadership and um, you know, I'm a person, I, I seek God and all the decisions I make and somehow I knew I was just going to do it again. And I thought, no, I can't, this is no. And then I filed and all of the memories of what a campaign is started coming back. And I thought, Oh my gosh, I'm on this fast, fast, fast paced train. Here we go. You know, I'm on it. I can't look back. <laughs> and, um, and it was, it was amazing. And, and the cool thing about running the second time, and I'm curious if this was your experience, like you meet all the people that when you ran the first time and then in the last, you know, nine years, you know, period during that time, you know, my kids went through the system. I met many more parents, um, you know, was founded a PTO, um, you know, just my network increased and particularly among parents mm-hmm. in the district. And so I had you know, an army of volunteers the second time around, folks that were just galvanized um, mm-hmm. and wanting change. So it was um, a very different experience the, the second time. Was it any easier? No. Mm-hmm. I mean, the campaign is just, you know how hard it is. You know, you've got to hit the pavement. You've got to knock on doors. So I started block walking in July and many people told me that's too early. People aren't going to remember. Um, so out of the nine districts, I have one of the largest um, I think our target universe was about 14,000 voters. Um, I personally knocked on 3,500 doors. Um, I mean, I blocked walked every evening as long as it wasn't raining. Mm-hmm. Every Saturday, every Sunday, um, you know, had volunteers and paid staff doing the same thing. So, you know, it's it's hard work to run a campaign. And sometimes I think I wish it were easier. 
Um, I wish that it wasn't, it didn't require, um, I would say so much effort, but you know, I ended up, I ended up resigning for, I worked at a very small nonprofit and I remember my boss and I told him, I was like, you know, I filed to, to run. Um, and he told me, you know, do what you need to do. You know, we'll be flexible with you. But, you know, a couple months went by and I realized I'm, I can't, it's, it, you know, we wear so many hats at that small nonprofit. I was like, I can't do it all. And I didn't feel like it was fair to my colleagues to put everything on them. And so end up resigning um, so that I could focus full time on the campaign. And, and there's plenty of folks that, that work full time and run a campaign, but it's, it's really, really hard. It's very hard, um, I think, to balance all things. And then, you know, I'm, I'm a mom on top of all of those other hats I wear. Um, and even now um, that I'm a trustee, um, you know, in Texas, trustees aren't paid, no stipend, you know, nothing. And it should be, you know, something that you're spending, you know, maybe five hours a week ends up being so much more. Um, and so it's difficult, I think, to balance. And I wish that there were an easier way for folks um, that would want to do this to be able to do it, that, um, you know, can, if they don't have to quit their job to be able to do it, um, I wish that we could make it easier. I, I wish that was the case also. And I, and there, there are some mechanics that are associated with actually putting together an operation, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I remember when I... Uh, when I initially started running, somebody set me down and he told me, um, you know, initially like there's a, there's a, there's a distinction between thinking about it and I'm doing it right. Mm -hmm. And getting over that Mm -hmm. hump is kind of the first step. And then, because once you are committed to doing it, at least for me in, in my journey going down the path, there was a um, there's a lot of things that are really uncomfortable about running that uh that you just have to get over <laughs> or like not do well at right mm-hmm. <laughs> like raising money um was, yeah. was was fundraising a part of your first campaign second campaign so interestingly the first time i ran and that was part of the reason that i decided to do it because um you know my network with teachers that was all the people i knew in houston you know not people with money and, um, you know, an individual and, and some folks that worked with her were willing to help with that fundraising aspect. So that helped um, tremendously. Um, the second time around, so it's interesting, in the last, I want to say, maybe five years in Houston, there's been a lot more um, intentional um, thought and I think organizations that are supporting candidates and endorse not just endorsing them but endorsing them monetarily and particularly school board candidates right because you've always got you know you've got the harris county democrats or republicans or you know whatever they've always endorsed or there's other organizations that have you know PACs that have existed for a long time and there's a lot more new PACs um that are supporting and so that was also um that helped me make my decision knowing that that potential um money from organizations existed, let alone, you know, the network that I had amassed, you know, the last decade that would help me. Um, I mean, it's still a challenge. It was probably like the least favorite part for me of campaigning, you know, having to call people and ask for money. But, um, you know, that motivation, knowing what it's for, is, it helps for sure. A lot about a campaign is dealing with rejection, right? So you, you ask for money, people <laughs> say no. Uh, you ask for their vote, people say no. 
Um, <laughs> you know, some people say yes. Yeah. But you got to get through the nose. <laughs> um, did you, would you say that uh, something in your past like prepared you to, to get through the nose or um, was it just something that like was really uncomfortable? You just kept walking through. You know, I'm as a person, my personality and, you know, I think folks that know me really well, I don't normally take things personally. Like things just roll off my back. You know, I don't get offended easily. Um, I don't hold grudges. So when folks, you know, when I re- experience rejection, you know, either at somebody's door or, you know, not getting an endorsement that I thought I was going to get, or, you know, even people getting dirty and saying things in the campaign, I feel like I have that. Uh, it's just um, something I've always, that's how I've always been. I just don't take it personally, which I think helps a lot in a campaign because um, there could be a lot of mudslinging, you know, even people that you thought were on your side or that you trusted end up supporting the other person. Um, and that could be hurt, potentially very hurtful. Um, and what happens when you let that get to you, that it distracts you from what you should be doing, right? Then you can easily get down and then, well, gosh, I don't want to fundraise now. What, you know, why bother even going knocking on doors? I mean, what's the point, right? You know, I tend to get, I'm a pretty driven person when I, there's an end goal. It's like nothing else, you know, it's just everything bounces off. I'm like, okay, I've just got to, get to that end goal. And then at the end, you know, when the campaign's over, you know, I start to reflect on some of the things that happened or were said. And I thought, Oh, okay. That probably wasn't very positive, but it's like, I can't even focus on it because then I feel like it distracts me. But um, you know, if you're a person that's considering running, um, you know, for any public office, um, you know, it's something you have to kind of be prepared for that people are going to be ugly or some people are just going to say no. And, you have to realize that you can't take it personally. You just have to move on. I mean, in both of our journeys, you went through the initial process of getting acclimated to like, okay, I'm going to do this. And then you experience suggestion along the way. At the end of it, um, I wouldn't say it's the ultimate rejection, but another form of rejection is the people saying, we want this other person more. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but, but you but you bounced back and you did it again. And um, the initial rejection of losing, the ultimate rejection, you you might say. Um, but then you realize when you start to serve that all of the stuff involved in winning has really nothing to do with governing. And you're governing at a time mm-hmm. that is unprecedented for the country. Texas has been a in the national news along with Florida for this sort of um, loosening restrictions early, which resulted like in a higher number of cases. So I want to get into that. But first, before we get into that, what is the approach that Houston is taking around how to start the first day of school? So Houston ISD um, ended up deciding to, the first six weeks are going to be virtual, but they actually postponed the first day. Um, So typically we would have started August 24th, the last Monday in August, but we postponed two weeks. So we're going to start the Tuesday after Labor Day. And the thought behind that, um, you know, the administration decided this, I think, is so that, you know, we're starting virtually. It'll take us into October, those six weeks. But if we start a little later, that gives, you know, time to pass to hopefully, you know, the, the curve starts to go down is the, the hope. 
right? And so if we see that the numbers start going down, then um, the administration is going to revisit this and, and uh, decide whether we stay virtual for a couple more weeks or go um, back brick and mortar or if there's a hybrid for parents to, to pick from. Like, t- tell us a little bit about the Houston district, the amount of students. Yeah, we have 208,000 students in the Houston Independent School District. There's uh, 285 schools. Over 60% of the students are on free and reduced lunch. Um, about 65% of the students are Latino. Um, and so we have, you know, high need, um, you know, and Latino and, and the Black community in Houston has been, you know, disproportionately affected by um, this virus, unfortunately. And so, um, and we know that the students that, you know, are the most vulnerable, the ones that when we're closed, when we have brick and mortar, I mean, when we have online learning are not engaging um, as they would in a classroom. So out of our 207,000 students, 7,000 were not contacted during um, the spring semester. So, you know, a lot of efforts were made to contact all students. I mean, there were even, you know, social workers going and knocking on doors, you know, safe distance, obviously, but Mm -hmm. there were 7,000 kids that were unaccounted for (laughs) during this time. And so when you think about that number, I mean, that's a huge amount of students. And then even of the other students that were accounted for, that doesn't mean they were even necessarily logging on or logging on more than, you know, a few times. And I don't think our, our, experience is unique in Houston um, for what our students experience during the spring semester um, with virtual learning. Um, and I think, you know, administration and, and teachers in our district have had time over the summer to think about, you know, what they can do differently to engage more students. Um, you know, the challenges will still be there. Um, you know, there's a lot more intention with parent um, outreach um, this coming semester to help, you know, help parents better support their their own students at home and um and teachers you know i think just streamlining their learning a little bit more i mean it was you know we all had to change overnight parents kids teachers principals you know all of a sudden shift to this new way of learning um so it was a learning curve for for everyone but yeah so houston um you know it's it's a district with with a lot of needs we have um a community school schools model um that has been I want to say about three years in our schools um, to really focus on on the temporal needs of the students you know and the families to better support them so that students can can focus and learn and and get that social and emotional help that is so needed so that they're they're able to reach their full potential. One of the things that I've been struggling with is this tension between because you mentioned the the amount of students that were unaccounted for this tension between uh safety and compromising students future that's that kind of seems like mm-hmm. those are on the table like you know we either uh we either take the learning loss on the chin in the short term to save people's lives in the long term or we try to you know obviously as much as we can mitigate or ensure we don't have learning loss and um and take all the precautions we can to save life long term. Uh, and the size of Houston is like um, four times the size of San Francisco. Like we have two, we have 50, 56,000 students. You have over 200,000. Um, mm-hmm. But a lot of the similarities when I was hearing you share your, the dynamics, it's 
it's similar. How do you mm-hmm. how do you fall on that tension that I'm that I'm sort of showcasing? Like where where are you with that? You know, I think about my own three kids. And I think, okay, do I feel comfortable and ready to send them to school? And then I think, well, then how do, you know, how do other parents feel? Um, you know, we look at the, the news, the numbers every day, um, and the cases haven't started going down. It seems like we're kind of, you know, at a, you know, same average. Um, and I don't think there's enough research around, um, you know, I think it was just Dr. Fauci said, particularly ele- elementary age kids, um, are not getting sick, right? They're, they're, it's, it's safe. And I think if the, the safety precautions are really in place, and I mean, really in place for very young children, you know, obviously teachers um, pose a risk and that's why, you know, we'd have to be very, very cautious. Um, at the same time, those countries did not have the level of numbers that, you know, Texas and particularly Houston are seeing right now. And so it, it, it worries me because safety, like you're saying, you know, the, the life of a person, that's what you have to think of more than anything else. That's, that's first and foremost. Um, but when I think about the learning loss that's happening, you know, we know that summer slide, there's so much research around summer slide, low income students, high need students, vulnerable students. These are our students that are always um, falling behind when they come back to school and having to make up you know, not just what they learned over, lost over the summer, but almost like going backwards, back into the spring. So we take into account COVID slide. I don't even want to imagine where um, our students are going to be or how much learning loss has occurred. I, we, I don't think we have um, any idea of what that looks like yet. And so I think about the long-term effects of that. You know, we weren't doing so well before COVID for our most vulnerable populations. Um, you know, currently 39% of third graders in Houston are reading on grade level, 39%. And when you break that down by Black and Latino, I mean, you're going into the teens in terms of numbers. And so where does that leave our kids? And we, I mean, if I think about, they were already so far behind and then this, this loss of learning is gonna put, I mean, can they even catch up? Are they even gonna be on track, you know, not just in third grade, but you know, moving on in the, the rest of their lives. And so that's definitely what keeps me up at night. It does worry me. And um, I'm very curious to see, you know, school districts that are opening brick and mortar, even if it's hybrid, you know, obviously with much lower numbers, I really want to see how they do because I want to get our kids back in school as quickly as possible so that um, that learning loss doesn't go on any longer than needed. Right. You know, we we have to be cautious and we should be looking at at data and we need to be listening to um, scientists and experts more than politicians, but we need to, um, you know, be analyzing that as much as possible. Yeah. I was one of those people that uh, when, when, when I heard what we all heard the news reports about Texas reopening, um, I, I wasn't one of the people, I honestly wasn't one of the people criticizing the state. That was like, that was like very easy to do. Um, I was just kind of curious. I was curious, like, okay, like, uh, what's going to happen, you know? Because mm-hmm. had it not gotten worse, I think that would have ignited more states reopening. Now. Oh, yeah, for sure. In the North, like in the North, in the Midwest, 
you know, in, in the smaller states also, places like New, New Hampshire and Montana and Maine, they aren't seeing the same rate of cases. Um, they're starting to open up a bit more. But like Texas and Florida, like cases skyrocketed, right? And so I know that um, in Houston, there's Houston is a more is, is a more progressive area than like Texas more broadly, right? Texas is a conservative state, and then there was this sort of like yeah. tension. There's always this this beef between state and local if they're politically not aligned. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Your your That's district right. is kind of uh, going through that. I think a little bit around school. Can you explain a little bit about? Uh, you can you can sort of debunk my does that tension exist locally and statewide? Oh yeah, dynamic now. What's what's going on right now? It's really um, I guess the word interesting. It's I think it's challenging. It's very very challenging. So I mean that tension definitely exists. You know both at the the school district decision making level and then just even the county and mayor trying to make decisions about mask wearing and the governor saying one thing and they're saying a different thing. So the Texas Education Agency um, is the entity in, in Texas that lays out the guidelines for, for opening and, and that's all tied to funding, the state funding, right? And so um, I think early in July, they had said brick and mortar or you don't get funding. So schools are scrambling and thinking, okay, what, what are we gonna do? How can we do this safely? You know, thinking about PPE, social distancing, you know, having to, I mean, how are you going to social distance when you're already overcrowded in your schools? You know, just so many different challenges. Well, then about a week later, they said, okay, you can actually do virtual, but only if all of the kids have um, devices and access to internet. So it's either a hotspot or Wi-Fi or whatever. Um, just yesterday, the, uh, the Texas Attorney General said that local dis- school districts did not have the authority or could not close if, you know, like our county judge basically said schools can't open until um, after September, mid-September. And he said local school districts have to follow what the state says, not the county. So it's all this mixed messaging. But then today I've been reading about it and they're saying that the attorney general, it's not even legally binding what he's saying. That's just his opinion. Um, that really ultimately the governor is the one that, and he's been pretty silent um, in the last few weeks. The governor is the one that can really say, yes, follow your local authorities or no, this is what we're saying. And so, so many confusing messages. Um, And we have, you know, more than 20 school districts just in the Houston area alone. Um, You know, we're definitely the largest and and parents, you know, before we came out with our our public announcement parents were besides themselves. Okay, what should I do? Should I be looking for homeschooling options, private school options? Like, what's going to happen? If you guys open, I'm not sending my kid. I don't feel safe when, you know, have parents on both sides of of the coin, you know, in terms of decisions. And so it has been um, extremely, extremely challenging um, hearing those different messages and knowing that, you know, potential funding could be cut because of, you know, really looking out for the safety um, of students and staff. And so, um, no, easy, no easy decisions. And, you know, I wonder how it is in other states if that tension doesn't exist, is it, I think it make it much more, you know, it's challenging no matter what to, to try to come up with a reopening plan and, and safe or virtual learning. Um, but it makes it much more challenging when, um, 
you know, state leaders are, are saying contradicting statements within weeks of each other. You know, yes, no. Oh, yes. Oh, wait, no. Um, you know, and I think I know that things change um, daily, you know, when we're looking at, at the coronavirus and the cases. But, um, you know, as an entity, as a body, a decision making body that influences hundreds of thousands of students across the state, um, you know, those decisions need to be um, much more consistent to help or support our school districts. Yeah, it's a tough position to be in. I mean, it, it has been for, for me, and I guess it's not necessarily easy for anybody. And one of the things that um, has been my ongoing frustration is statements that are opinions, but people think it's policy. And then news reporters running yeah. with that, like it's an announcement. And then people walking it back or um, uh, people using money as a as like a bargaining tactic when people when people's lives are on the line it's like it's like it's really reckless and i and i and i think no matter the party there's been this like authoritarian approach that really bothers me personally it's kind of like it's like it's like there's there's not a lot of not a lot of shared decision making um there is urgency with this situation but uh i think we're giving up a um i think we're giving over as as state agencies or you know as as counties also a lot of our decision making ability um and you see and you see that not happening within certain pockets of society like the people that can afford to exclude themselves you know they're going to do what they do because they can afford to do what they do like so like that's the pod movement the pandemic pod movement right that's um uh, and and then that's also a lot of people that aren't really engaged or in compliance with they weren't in compliance with government before. Like you go, you go to the black community, not every black community, but some, you'll see people having barbecues, um, kicking it, you know, or, or any sort of like family focused community. That's like, I'm not tripping on Corona, you know? So that's like a, um, yep. a common thing you see. And so trying to manage and lead in all of this is, is hard. Right. Um, but seeing it go down in Texas has been crazy. Y'all tripping. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. And then, you know, it's interesting because we're, we're independent school districts, right? That's what we're called in Texas. Uh-huh. So it's all about local control, supposedly, right? But it's like, I feel like we don't, we don't even get a say and to decide what's best for Houston. You know, our numbers are different from, you know, not the whole state, but a lot of the state, you know, smaller towns, smaller districts. They're not facing the same challenges um, as the large urban areas or even the, the Rio Grande Valley is getting hit very, very hard by this um, pandemic. And so, you know, I think local control is especially important at this time. And, and you know, the folks closest to um, the people are the ones that know what, what's needed. And so it's it's been frustrating, um, yeah, to watch this definitely and really be a part of it. <laughs> How do you think about your priorities right now? I think I touched on it, the learning loss, just thinking about our most vulnerable students. When we talk about equity, um, you know, whether we're online or brick and mortar, um, you know, making sure that that's our priority. Um, English language learners, special ed students, um, our students that were already identified as, as um, you know, likely to repeat a grade or, you know, just be behind. And so really making sure that we're intentional um, about reaching all of our students, but particularly those that, that have the highest need. Um, 
And then how do you balance that with, you know, the other spectrum of, you know, like you mentioned the pods, the parents that are like, well, shoot, we're just going to figure this out on our own because our school district, they don't feel like the school district's going to deliver. Um, and so, you know, meeting the needs of everyone during this time, but um, the ones I worry about the most are, are, are high need students. Mm. So, you know, me, those are definitely priorities. Yeah. Let me ask you, but do, do you, does, does, does Texas have a teacher's union? Mm-hmm. Okay. There's, um, there's actually a few different ones. Um, you know, the largest one, there's a state and then there's a local chapter as well. Okay. Yeah. And they've been very vocal about, um, you know, making sure that we're virtual initially. Um, they were even talking about a strike, which is actually illegal. You can't strike. Um, you can't strike in Texas. And so um, if you do, you risk losing not just your contract, but your um, retirement, which is part of the state. Um, so, you know, I think when yeah. they're thinking about doing something that drastic, they feel pretty strongly about it. So mm-hmm. there were conversations at both the state level um, union and also the lo- local union. Well, I don't have you too much longer and I, and I kind of want to touch base. I want I want to ask a, a few personal questions before we, we close this thing out. Um, there's, there's way more sure. issues to cover than we had time to. I appreciate <laughs> hearing more about your story and what you're continuing with in the great city of Houston. One of my favorite places in the world. I have a, I have a list of rapid fire questions. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> Trustee Cruz is always ready. <laughs> I try to be. <laughs> okay. Do you meditate? Not as much as I should, honestly. And with this pandemic, um, I found myself, yeah, like really feeling that need um, to to do it more. Have like really need to focus my thoughts. I mean, you know, my mind's everywhere with what what could happen. So, yes, but very limited amount. What personal weakness can you forgive in someone? You know, I'm a pretty forgiving person. I probably forgive more easily than I should, I think. Um, I think, you know, I tend to look at people and I try to put myself in their position. Um, and I tend to forgive people when I, when I realize their intention isn't what's, ha- you know, how it's being perceived or what's actually happening, right? So I tend to forgive someone if I realize that their intention is what they think in their head you know, and I, and I, and I try to communicate, you know, through that situation. But I think um, that's the first thing that comes to mind. It's just realizing a lot of times, you know, what someone's doing and saying I or other people perceive in a completely different way. And so just trying to step back or understand what their intention is. What was your worst moment in your career? I would say losing um, the first election, you know, that's, it's a hard, and probably just the campaign in general, the hard experience. Yeah. 44 votes. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's close. Um, <laughs> would you have rather lost by four votes? <laughs> Either number is so close. Anything got less than 100. Um, I mean, there were like, I think less than 2,000 people turned out to vote in the runoff. It was really low voter turnout. Who is your favorite child? I'm joking. Don't answer that. Don't answer that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's funny because they love to ask me that. And I'm like, you're all my favorites. <laughs> Which one of your colleagues do you hate the most? I don't answer that either. <laughs> I love them all. I love them all. <laughs> all right. Last and final question. 
who's going to win the presidential election? I'm I'm hoping for Biden. Um, you know, we definitely need to change. It's not the candidate I would have picked, you know, initially um, of the Democratic candidates, but it's where we are. Um, so, um, you know, the polls are show, are promising. And surprisingly, in Texas, we had the highest voter turnout um, than we've had in a very long time, despite COVID. And, and I know that's what political analysts are, are um, thinking for the November turnout. Um, and there's a huge movement to turn Texas blue. We're purple. We're purple. We're getting there. So it'll be exciting to see what happens. This is another installment of Cook on Quarantine. I was able to talk to the lovely Miss Judith Cruz, trustee on the Houston Independent School District. Thank you again for your time. Thanks, Simon. <laughs> so nice to be here. Peace, peace. And thank you for listening to another episode of Cook on Monday Morning. At Cook on Monday Morning, we're building lives that make us excited about Monday morning. We believe that if we can own Monday morning, we can own the week. If we can own the week, we can own the year. And if we change our year, we can change our lives. I'd like to thank Trustee Judith Cruz for sharing her story and the lessons she's learned running for office in Houston. Uh, we need more women like her in public service. So I hope this episode will inspire anyone looking to do more to change their community and get involved. I'd like to thank you, our listeners, and those that continue to subscribe to the podcast uh, on the Cook on Monday Morning YouTube channel. I am deeply grateful for your support. Thank you. Please share the podcast with a friend. Help us grow this community of doers. Uh, take a minute to subscribe to the podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, you can also rate and review it on Apple. If you're interested in starting a podcast, I wrote an article. It's called How to Start a Podcast During a Pandemic. It goes over the equipment I use and has book recommendations. You can read the full article. It's in the description box below. Cook on Monday Morning is a product of the Luther Harris Holding Company. We work in partnership to create solutions that drive social impact. We do that by building strategic partnerships between businesses and government, recruit diversity talent to high impact roles, and we help companies drive impact in the communities where they do business. If you'd like to learn more, send me an email, info at stevoncook.com. Again, I'd like to thank our listeners and the people that made this podcast possible. Our videographer, David Topete. Thank you. Uh, our copy editors. Fernando Cinco Marquez and Devin Sketchinger. I get up every morning with the intention to create value and showcase love to the people that keep our cities moving. They are our teachers, school lunch workers, custodians, social workers, firefighters, police officers, EMT workers, garbage collectors, bus drivers, and nurses. They are our employers, the folks creating jobs and keeping our economy moving. They are our gig workers, stocking our shelves, driving our ride shares, delivering our food to all of you. This podcast is for you. You live in places like San Francisco, Oakland, Richmond, Antioch, San Mateo, Los Angeles, Dallas, Houston, New Orleans, Baton Rouge, Miami, Orlando, the Carolinas, Virginia Beach, Milwaukee, Kansas City, Cleveland, Detroit, Harlem, Brooklyn. And also, I want to give a shout out to our listeners in Nigeria, Ghana, Jamaica, Kenya, and Ethiopia. This podcast is for you. It's for all of you. Uh, this message 
is touching the world or will continue to because of you until we meet again peace peace and we out